Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We continue our study of Acts 13. It's a great privilege for us to uh, welcome uh, Pastor James Sharp, uh, who's a missionary in Uruguay, uh, Montevideo, I believe still. Uh, he visited our Savior Lutheran Church, well, gosh, is it come, was it two years ago? Three? Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's three now, yeah. <gasps> Time flies. Um, so, uh, on a Sunday when we had very few people in church, which is sad. So, but to those of us who were there heard about his work and, uh, and he's a very fine man, you can tell because he, he, he thinks that Finnish mustard is the best in the world and that's always it's sign really of, good. It's, it's, it's really a good. sign of sophistication in a, in a, in a person. <clears throat> so we have a couple of Finns and plus an additional lover of Finnish mustard here in the meeting. So that's a really good, good way to, uh, good, good way to be. So glad you could join us. Our last time we uh, got as far as verse 12 of chapter 13, <clears throat> the beginning of the uh, <coughs> journey of uh, Paul um, uh, with Barnabas. And today we are going to focus on uh, his uh, uh, sermon uh, in, at Antioch in Pisidia. But before we do any of that, let's uh, open with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your faithfulness. You have given us your word, and by that word we have come to know your love in your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you continue to provide for us these opportunities to uh, meditate on your word, to study it, and to grow in the knowledge of your revelation. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in all our hearts and minds now, leading us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so um, <clears throat> we had, um, last time we uh, as I said, started by looking at the um, uh, Paul's uh, first missionary journey. And just so that it, uh, we can have a nice, start with a nice picture, because we all like pictures. Uh, there is the map. I hope you can see that on the screen. <coughs> Uh, so Paul left, uh, the, Saul, Barnabas and John Mark left Antioch, uh, in Syria, where the red and the blue things meet and went to the coast, uh, to the nearest port and then to Cyprus and there was Salamis and in Paphos. They have then crossed, uh, uh, so they, that's where they stopped. We stopped in Paphos and they are now about to cross and just to give you a spoiler, uh, they will end up in Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, there was more than one Antioch in the uh, Greco-Roman world. Uh, the reason was that the uh, rulers of the ancient world were a bit like politicians of the modern day. They were really, really modest people. So they liked to name places uh, after themselves. And uh, just a, uh, a couple of centuries prior to this, uh, the, uh, this time, uh, after the death of Alexander the Great, who liked to play, name the cities Alexandria, uh, because he too was a, a modest fellow. Uh, his kingdom was uh, divided into four parts and one <coughs> of, uh, between his various generals and one of them was a man called Antiochus. And so we find that in his region where he was in charge, uh, when new towns were built, they for some strange reason got the name Antioch. The Antioch in Syria was one of the chief cities of the Roman Empire. Uh, Antioch in Pisidia, uh, in sort of uh, south uh, western Galatia uh, was a lesser place, but nevertheless a, a sufficiently significant place. 
Before we go anywhere else, I just want to reiterate what I've mentioned before. Notice where Paul does go and where he doesn't go, or where they, rather Paul and Barnabas, go and where they don't go. And the answer is they go to cities but not to villages. Um, in fact, if, if, if I'm be made, uh, can share with you a conversation that Pastor Sharp and I had when he was visiting, when we were having lunch, uh, here in Fair and we were talking about this, the very thing about the importance of when you're establishing a mission, uh, and, and, uh, and establishing especially new work in places where you, the, the church doesn't exist or your kind of church doesn't exist is to, is to be strategically wise, uh, and go to places, uh, where uh, where there is, if you like, opportunity both for uh, good reach but and also for further growth. Um, one might even argue that uh, Fairham is not that place. <laughs> <It's Hampshire. laughs> uh, or, and if you're in Fairham, a scout hall on the edge of town, uh, which is quite hard to spot off the road, is, might not also be that place, but that's where we are as, as things stand. But so, so the early, early missionaries... Uh, of the New Testament era, they tended to go to the main main centres, uh, population centres, uh, and it took quite a while. I mean, the Christian faith sp- spent a long time spreading from town to town and city to city, and it took a while for it to penetrate uh, into the uh, countryside, into the villages. But that's always the case. So even if, if you medieval Europe, um, and in fact not very medieval Europe, quite recent uh, recent times, you will find that while you get uh, all 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 very um, very civilized and and erudite Christians in the towns and cities, there's a mixture of uh, mixture of Christianity and uh, traditional paganism and superstition in the countryside for a long time before uh, before the uh, gospel has the chance to fully penetrate the culture. Just that was a little footnote, really, to get us going. Just say so the the their um, if you like the geographical uh, strategy. Uh, which I would argue is probably one, even we, we're not compelled to do it. It's not commanded by God, but it, it's a really wise way, uh, I, I would argue of, um, um propagating, uh, the church and the gospel. Uh, before we uh, get into the uh, text itself, does anybody want to, uh, comment or ask anything about on that, uh, little footnote of mine? I was just thinking that's actually not the way that God's strategy went in that he started with a tiny country that was very weak, you know, Israel, compared to those around. That's a very interesting comment, given what we're about to hear (laughs) in the text, because we're about to come to read Paul's uh, sermon in in Antioch and Pisidia, which deals with the whole history. There's a big difference uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in this regard, that the... Uh, God doesn't call the Israelites to be a missionary people. He calls them to be a holy people unto himself. It's what happens with the gospel, uh, 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 of Jesus Christ is that the, this, the God's call now is for the world, going to and make disciples of all nations. And, and so it's really the first time, um, that the word of God is, if like, is very, very purposefully and, de- and deliberately and energetically now, turn into a, if like a, an evangelistic or outward reaching or wh- whatever terminology you want to use message, which is specifically intended to be spread far and wide. That wasn't the case in the old covenant. That's the, that, that would be the reason. Right. Any other questions or comments? Uh, 
Um, I think I'd just like to clear, it's the first missionary journey from Paul, is it? Correct. Yes. Mm. Yes, it is. Mm. Okay. Uh, so we were in Paphos and we are about to set sail. Um, could we uh, read just the first couple of verses? So from verse 13 um, up to verse, just 13, 14 and 15, in fact. So if somebody would like to read only a very short section, here's, you know, go for it, because the next <laughs> one's going to be longer. Okay. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Sidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Thank you. Okay, so uh, there was the, hopefully you, you, you can hold that map in your head. So we've crossed from Paphos to Perga on the south coast of what we now call Turkey. And then they traveled up country for reasons we're not told, uh, to Antioch and Pisidia. But before they set up for Antioch, uh, John leaves them and goes back to Jerusalem. We are not told anything more than that that's what happens. It's later on in Acts we discover that this was not just a, 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 um, a change of plans mutually agreed, but it in fact this will come to cause uh, conflict in the future between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, remember, was a relative of John Mark's, and um, uh, it, it it leads to a falling out between them, which God, in his in his usual wisdom, then turns into a an opportunity for a more effective spreading of the gospel. So he can use their cooperation and their disharmony to do what he's going to do anyway. Um, so, there, but at this point, we have no, no, no more information about it. Do note that these are these kind of quick sentences. They set sail from Paphos to Perga and Pamphylia, and then they will. These are we talk about uh, sea journeys in the Mediterranean on on ancient ships, uh, which are not necessarily that smooth or comfortable, and and always quite risky. Uh, and moreover, um, we are also talking about uh, quite the extensive land travel so we you know this is this is a lot of days of travel and uh, quite sore feet i suspect so they were basically walking they didn't have donkeys or anything like that it was just we walking. don't know i mean they, they the chances i mean they didn't have their own animals they wouldn't have or very unlikely to have had their own animals so they very likely they they traveled on foot um mm. unless they managed to hitch a ride with somebody which we're not told about you know mm. somebody somebody with a with a cart or you know horse and cart or something or or a donkey or a yeah, it's interesting because later on, we, I mean, Paul writes in Galatians that when he first came to Galatia, he was ill. Um, it was because of illness that he had uh, gone there. And also when he is beaten in, uh, where is he, Lystra? I can't remember. But anyway, soon after that, they left. Um, and he's, they're just walking. <laughs> this is all in Galatia. So, uh, yes. It was quite, uh, yes, all of the, the, I mean, the, you kind of put your finger on a, on a on a tricky exegetical question about the uh, the identification of Galatia in in Paul's letters and in Acts. There are two different theories: the North Galatian and South Galatian. Oh, Galatia is a very large area, and and which he refers to. 
And unless you really, really insist, I'm not even going to touch that because it's it's quite tedious. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of makes yeah. it makes mainly a difference to timing, the timing and the ordering of which letter Paul wrote in which order. And you know, had he had he right. was he had he written Galatians before or after Acts six seventeen and and you know one Corinthians and all that kind of. So it's it's a bit tedious, but in the chance my my sort of my hunch would be that when he writes the Galatians, we're not talking about Antioch and Pisidia. We're talking about further north uh, in Galatia. That would be that would be my take on this, but it's it's. Uh, I'm sure there there you can you can very quickly find 17 professional New Testament scholars who will tell me tell you that I'm completely wrong, and then I'll find another 17 to agree with me, and and we can talk about it. It's like but it's like the old thing about economists, you know, they thousand enter and then they won't reach a conclusion, and it's you know this is one of those things that we'll have to wait till Jesus comes back to figure out what exactly happened. But yes, there is. I mean, these these are arduous journeys. That's the point, though, and and mm. and they will have taken their toll um, on the travellers. After all, at this point, as far as we know, they are being funded by they they're travelling with some kind of a kitty uh, from Antioch. There's no indication that they are earning any money, and uh, by this time, it's unlikely that they are particularly wealthy. I mean, we have no indication that Paul ever was. And Barnabas had been, but he'd he'd sold quite a bit of his property by this time uh, to uh, care for the poor. The reason I wanted to stop here, though, was uh, to have a little, uh, put a a magnifying glass on the uh, synagogue. So they go come to uh, this, they come to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. First of all, that tells us that that we have a a sizable Jewish community in uh, Antioch because you need a minimum a quorum of 10 adult males to found a synagogue so they had at least 10 adult males in there which means that there would have been at least several households and as we will see it seems that there is you know there there are quite a few uh, Jewish people in Antioch and Pisidia as there were Jews in most of the major towns and uh, major cities at least of of the eastern half of the Roman Empire uh, around the Mediterranean, because the Jews had uh, many Jewish people had been in in, in the dispersion diaspora uh, for quite a while by now, including both Barnabas and Saul. Uh, of Barnabas, you know, Saul of Tarsus and Barnabas from uh, Cyprus. But they get there, and notice what it says, verse fifteen. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. The reason I wanted to just, uh, uh, press, uh, press a little uh, at the pause button at this point is just to note that we have something very similar here to what happens with Jesus in Nazareth, for example. That there's a reading from the prophets, and after the reading from the prophets, uh, Jesus in Nazareth and Paul and Barnabas here are invited to bring a word of encouragement to speak. Um, the There is a... Uh, very um, clear, uh, if like, continuity between, as far as we can reconstruct early synagogue worship, between early synagogue worship in in to rabbinical Judaism and Christian worship in the early church. That is to say, Christians when when people when when Christians early Christians who were again remember they were uh, initially they were Jews who believed in Jesus, and then to them were added. Uh, Gentiles until eventually the Gentiles became the majority. When they began to worship, 
as a distinct group from other Jews when they were kicked out of the synagogues, they didn't start from scratch. They didn't say, okay, now we're not Jew and we're not in the synagogue anymore. How should we worship God? Rather, what they did was they took what they already knew from, uh, which is synagogue worship and to use an anachronistic term, they Christianized it. And so if you read, for example, and some of you will remember from our Bible study on the, uh, when we looked at this uh, liturgy last year in our Bible study, uh, when you look at a description, earlier description of Christian worship, uh, Justin Martyr writing in Rome, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Shop, I'm, I'm, my, my memory says around 135, the first, first uh, apology. So anyway, he died about 150. So before 150, uh, describing how Christians worship, it sounds an awful lot like this, but instead of the law and the prophet, he says, we read, you know, there's reading from the memoirs of the apostles, he calls them, i.e. gospels. So in the early, in the synagogue worship, as far as we know, there, there were certain elements in the service. There were, there was, uh, singing of psalms. There was reading from the, the, uh, uh, law of Moses, the Pentateuch as the or the Torah, which is the kind of main reading, and then there's reading from prophets. And there was instruction, and there was prayer. Which, if you don't mind my saying so, sounds terribly familiar. <laughs> don't you think? And in fact, the Christian liturgy, and I, I use that term deliberately, Christian liturgy, which of which the Lutheran divine service is a, a one particular ver, uh, variant is essentially a combination of two elements. The first half, what we call the service of the word, is essentially the synagogue word, service, synagogue liturgy, Christianized. So we, you know, the until about 1970, uh, it was. Um, Epistle and Gospel, which kind of roughly corresponds to Prophet and Law. And the uh, Old Testament reading was added um, around that time, about 50 years ago. So we now get Old Testament, Epistle and Gospel. And then the instruction, as well as singing, psalmody. And we've added hymns as well. We've added Christians have been singing hymns in, 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 they started singing, composing hymns addressed to or concerning Jesus very, very early on. We've got some extracts of them in the New Testament and um, around uh, in the first decade of the second century, we've got some evidence from a Roman governor who, who who's kind of writing about the Christians whom he is actively persecuting and asking the emperor, shall I carry on persecuting them or not? Um, and he... Uh, 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 and he, he describes, the, he says that they, they sing hymns to, uh, uh, you know, they hymns sing hymns to a chap they call Christ as if to, to God. So this hymn singing is already very early. It's such an established tradition by a hundred in the first decade of the second century that it's just, it's kind of, it's the thing that distinguishes their worship. Um, and prayers. Then to that has been added the service of the sacrament, which is essentially a, a, a new covenant take on Temple worship. So the sacrifice, we don't make sacrifices anymore, but we, we, if you like, come into the presence of the sacrifice and enjoy the benefit of the sacrifice. So it's like, uh, you know, Jesus, the, the, 
the the majority of the temple service has already been carried out, carried out by Jesus once for all on the cross. The final culmination of temple worship was the sacrificial worship in the temple was the peace offering or the fellowship offering where the worshippers sat down to a, me- a covenant meal where a part of the sacrifice, you know, the, me- the sacrificial meat was actually eaten and shared uh, and it was, if you like, table fellowship with God. And that's what we have. So we've got the fellowship offering, which is the, the, or the peace offering or which Christ offered himself as the peace offering. And now that's presented to us as the covenant meal. And I you know if, if, if I, if I didn't exercise great self control, I could go down that particular rabbit hole for a very long time, but I shall, I shall put the brakes on, uh, and, and stay, keep the hobby horse in the corner. Um, and, and, but that, that is, that's, that's what our, liturgy consists of so when for example in the 1520s and 30s and around that time and and for a few decades around the reformation there was this sort of two two views amongst the reformers shall we carry on worshiping roughly the way that we were worshiping worshiping before the reformation or shall we scrap the thing and start from scratch there were two schools of thought and essentially the lutherans and the Anakins said we are going to reform the liturgy, get rid of all the things that don't belong, make sure that the gospel predominates. But this is not a, you know, the, the liturgy is not a, it's not a kind of papal thing. It's just a Christian thing. So this is continuity. And they probably didn't know it at the time because scholarship wasn't necessarily quite up to speed on this, but they were in fact not just in continuity with the 15th century and with the 10th century, but they were in fact in continuity with the early church, the earliest church and with the synagogue and the temple. And then you had the reformations in, in, in uh, Switzerland, Southern Germany, a uh, place like Geneva, Zurich, um, to a lesser degree, Strasbourg, Scotland, uh, Holland, where they, Scrapped the whole thing as, as, as so much, um, so much superstition and, and so on and wrote and started, you know, started from the beginning. That view has won in the Protestant world, especially since the middle 20th century. You go to any church that calls itself evangelical without adding Lutheran on uh, after the word evangelical and you will have a very poor chance of getting the liturgy and you're far more likely to get something very much less liturgical, something much more informal and so on that doesn't have any kind of organic connection uh, to the way that the early church worshipped and the church has worshipped through the ages. And I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get fanatical about it. We're not commanded in scripture how to worship and it's not sinful to ditch it, but I would say it's unwise without idolizing the liturgy as such. It needs pruning and it, it can be reformed and so on. Uh, but I think it's it's worth noting that. I Were these people all able to read? Uh, no. No. I mean, most Jewish men knew how to read because they were taught to read the law. Mm. But they were, as we as we will see, there are not all Jewish people there. There may well have been people who can't read. But why, let me, why do you ask? Um, well, just sort of thinking about them moving around from place to place and... Um, if they, uh, people like, well, like we have now of Germans, French, all the rest of it, they've all got different languages. Um, and so I'm kind of sort of trying to think about how that is about 
people if they're trying to read something, if they have to make it to a different language or all those sorts of things um, and, and sort of how they were managing it. But I suspect if they could do things off by heart, that would be the best idea. Uh, two answers to that. First of all, in all these towns and cities, Greek was the language. Right. So it was about as difficult as if you were traveling around, I don't know, 16th century uh, Britain and go from town to town. You could go to Wales, you go to Scotland, you go to Ireland, and you'd be understood perfectly well speaking English. Accent, accents change in some places. They spoke it better than other places. And uh, this is even before the invention of America. Um, and, uh, nevertheless, you know, you could get yourself understood. And they all spoke Greek. Greek was the language. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that some of Jesus' teaching was delivered by Jesus in Greek. Peter, you know, Andrew the apostle had a Greek name as did Philip, Philip and Andrew, there's both Greek names. And this really, it really was completely in the same way that in medieval Europe, you could, you could travel pretty, uh, pretty much anywhere in, uh, in, um, in the in Western Northern Europe. And as, as long as you stuck to towns and cities, you could get by very nicely in Latin. Thank you very much. Now that's the first part of the answer. Second part of the answer the idea that you need to be able to read to be able to take part in liturgy is a really modern idea. It's the sort of thing we take for granted. You know, how can people possibly join our church unless we give them an order of worship to read? These things didn't exist. Okay. Um, you know, the, 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 the liturgy wasn't written down. Well, in fact, when they did start writing the liturgy down, it was controversial. Uh, in the sort of uh, high middle ages, uh, people started making copies of the liturgy and, 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 and there was a real, it was a bit like introduction of screens into churches. <laughs> this just was demeaning, this is demeaning, this is, this is, you know, this is not worthy of, worthy of the sacred, sacred liturgy. Pretty on, you know, and, and, and there was a gre- real anxiety about if you write it down, people won't learn it. And they were anxious for a reason because that's exactly what happened. I mean, Socrates, the philosopher, he, he refused to write any of these teaching dams because he didn't believe in books. Books destroy the memory. And he wasn't wrong. I mean, there are some benefits you get, you know, you, there's a flip side to it. You know, you, you gain other things, but do they do, books do destroy memory. You know, so, so does Google. Although I, I'm quite fan, you know, quite fond of the internet for all sorts of things, but it's, it's not good for my memory or for various other things, which books are better for and, and, and so on. So the idea, you know, generally speaking, for the first thousand years or so of, of Christianity, most churches would have one copy of the liturgy. And everybody else learned it off by heart. I mean, even the early Lutherans, when the first Lutheran hymn book was published in 1524, it was, it was, it was a massive book, eight, eight hymns. It was called the eight book hymn, uh, eight, eight song book was his nickname. And, Half the hymns were set to the same tune, which is the tune that we now sing, Salvation, to us, un- salvation Unto Us Has Come. And they all wrote the same meter. It came to be known as the Lutheran meter for hymns. So that people, because the idea was people learn this thing off by heart and they can just sing, you know, you've learned this one tune, it's a bit complicated, but once you learn that, you can sing five hymns to it. And, and the idea again was that you, by repet- sheer repetition, people learn things off by heart. I did not see, set my eyes on a written order of service growing up until I started accompanying services. I'd never seen one. It was just, you know, you know, this, 
you didn't, it didn't matter where you went in the country, every Lutheran church had exactly the same liturgies, word for word the same, two different settings of the tune, and that was all you had. And, 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 uh, everybody just either knew it or they didn't know it. And if you didn't know it, you just went to church for three weeks and you knew it now. And I have to say that I think that's a better world than the one in which we live. <laughs> but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole either. Any any comments, questions before we actually get to the thing that we're supposed to be studying? <laughs> Are you happy to move on? Have yeah. I budgeted have I budgeted submission on on this point? Good, because that was the intention. Good. So let's read the actual sermon. So Paul, verse sixteen. I'll read the first half. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, "Now this what what's this motioning with his hand? It's a kind of." Um, I don't know how many, uh, uh, have, are you familiar with, uh, with the very witty but very rude, uh, comedy, uh, Blackadder, uh, comedy? Yes. yes. And there's a famous Blackadder the Third, uh, which is set in Regions, England. There's a very famous, uh, 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 uh episode about the actors. When print, uh, when pr- uh, the Prince Regent is, is, uh, preparing to give a public address. And the, and they hire some actor, actors to come and teach him how to do how to do public address, and it's all about posture. And you know, you have to thrust your pelvis forward, and then you start with a run, unaccustomed as I am. This is, and then, and that's that kind of that's the basis, basic joke of that episode. But there's a kind of idea that there is a certain, there are certain kind of gestures and things you do when you're being a great orator. And this kind of gesture with your hand is is one of those. So is his Luke kind of dropping a little, you know, just dropping a little note to the the uh, the well educated reader. Paul knew what he was talking about when he started speaking in public. And nevertheless, he writes that he, he you know, he was not a good speaker and uh, presenter, so... Comparatively. I mean, especially, oh, he, write, he writes that particularly to Corinth because there, yeah. he, Paul had this, this great misfortune of uh, of having as one of the people who, who also was in Corinth, Apollos, who was famously famously eloquent. So it's a bit like if you're a really decent preacher and a really decent public speaker, but it just happens that Martin Luther King comes after you. <laughs> and then you kind of say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm not great, spe- not a great speaker. Doesn't mean that he wasn't any good. He just wasn't Apollos. Yeah. Because not a lot of people were Apollos. Okay. So could we read, please, uh, in a couple of sections? Somebody like to read from, uh, 16 to, uh, 25. Okay, I'll do that. Thank you. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers um, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. 
Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Thank you. We're going to stop there because that's the first part. That's uh, like that's the exposition where he where he kind of gives the exposition. The second half is his application of this text. What do you see or hear in this first half of this sermon? Well, the same pattern as oh, sorry, as Stephen had when he had his before he was stoned. You know, starting from. All the way. Interesting. Actually, I, uh, Peter doesn't uh, refer go all the history. He goes straight. He 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 goes lots of scriptures, but he doesn't go back to the history as much as like Stephen did or Paul here. True. Except Stephen starts all frame of all the way from Abraham, and uh, so Paul is a bit uh, shorter in his yes. <laughs> history. Yes, yeah, maybe he didn't like long sermons quite as much as Stephen, although he he grew accustomed to them later, and as we will learn. Uh, happy to preach through the night. Um, yes. Anything else? So there's, there's clear, this is very similar to Stephen in many ways. Yes. Who was another Hellenistic Jew, as, as we call them earlier? Yeah, I think Paul's very keen to sort of, yeah, set it in context, not as the messianic promise being fulfilled and not just sort of something he's invented. Yeah. Very good. Sets the kind of sets the foundation. What what are they learn? What have the what have his con- the congregation learned that they didn't know before? So far, possibly something about John. Possibly, I wouldn't put much money on that because we know that, for example, Ephesus further west, there were disciples of John the Baptist some years later. John was a superstar in the Jewish world. He was he, he was the famous one. Everybody heard had heard of him. Then nothing. They knew all this. Probably nothing. They knew all this. He's telling them what they already know. Why would you do that? In preaching. Go, Barbara. Um well when you're Starting off, it's a good idea to give people um, something that they do know, so you build on it. Yes, very good. Frame of reference. Yeah. Frame of reference. Yeah. Set set the scene for what you what your main point is. So that they can identify with Paul, sort of. You know. Yeah, I mean, rhetorically speaking, this he say he sets uh, that's a very good point. I mean, it was an important part of ancient rhetoric that you set uh, kind of that you gain your audience's sympathy. That was that was one of the key things. You begin by establishing sympathy between you and your audience, so that you can then take them take you take them along. Yes, there is something. There's a real scourge in in Christian preaching. Uh, you find it in lots of different places, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the assumed gospel. Where you kind of preach and you just assume that everybody already knows what you're talking about, so you can just say skip straight on to you know you know you know we know all the stuff about Jesus, so therefore, and you can just go straight to the point. And actually. It's the, well, what is this, what is this account? What, how would you summarize what he has done or what he has talked about? Um, 
Well, let me ask you this way, so that we really focus our question. Who is doing the doing here? God is. Yeah. It's a description of the works of God in salvation history. He's not just saying this happened and this happened and this happened. No. God chose our fathers and forces he put up with them. And after destroying seven nations, God did. He gave them their land. Now he, God is God is God. God, he's describing the works of God. And Isn't this, that what happened to, that's what happened at Pentecost when all the, um, when people were speaking in tongues, all the crowds said, we hear them telling our own tongues, the mighty word of God, works of God. Yes. And the, that is basically, if you ask what is the gospel, well, one way you could answer that is, is, is the description of the gospel is the blanket term for what God has done for us. And if you ask what is praising God, the answer is it is talking about what God has done. If you say, I am God, I praise you, you haven't praised him yet. <laughs> it's a bit like saying, you know, if, you know, if I say, if I say, um, I advertise a product, I haven't done it yet. I have to actually do something that advertises it. Um, and to praise God is not to say, I praise you. To praise God is actually to say what is praiseworthy about God. You know, if I, if I go up to a friend of mine and said, uh, let me pay you a compliment and walk off, I think my friend might be a tad disappointed. So I, I already told you I'm paying you a compliment. No, you know, what's the compliment? And so praising God, declaring what God has done is, this is what, this is what preaching is. This is what evangelism is. This is what all uh, Christian proclamation really is, is talking about what God has done, what God has said, what God has promised to do, what God has to give to us. And so when you tell people things that they already know, you're nevertheless, you know, uh, you're nevertheless building up their faith because what you're doing is you're declaring what God has done for them and it calls to mind and it calls to mind what God has done, which is the kind of the essential exercise in well, in this case, in the synagogue and later on in the church, we call to mind, we recall God's mighty works for us and his promises to us. And once we've done that, we don't have to say, and now we praise you, God, for it. No, no, we, we just did it. You know, the, the very famous, famous uh, verse in uh, Psalm 118, which was Martin Luther's motto um, and has been there, thereafter and probably before then as well, uh, motto of an awful lot of people, um, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's basically the Christian life in a nutshell. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And of course, that is a summary of also our Lord's ministry. He did not die, he did not live, but he recounts the deeds of the Lord. He does that by, through the apostles, through the uh, ministry of preaching. It's the, it's the work of Jesus recounting the deeds of the Lord, which are in fact his own deeds. And so it's, it's, it is essential, uh, essentially this is what, what Christian preaching ought to be, or, or biblical preaching. The other thing I'd like to note is, is that, is this, the speed with which he moves, describing things that took a very long time. I love this. All of this took about 450 years, and we've only got to the invasion of the land of Canaan. And then we get to Samuel and the prophet and Saul, and if you read you know, you read the, 
first uh, first and second Samuel. I mean, this, this is it's a, it's a long and involved story. The getting from Samuel to Saul to David, quite a lot of stuff happened. And it might have seemed quite long while to David from time to time while he's living in the wilderness or or in exile amongst the Philistines. And then we skip John, happily, skip quickly from David to John the Baptist, which is a, a, a merry leap of just under under a thousand years, in which a lot of stuff happened. So there's this kind of the, you know, looking back, back if you like, we can do these huge leaps and look what God has done. You're living in the middle of it. You, li- you feel like, you know, wh- where am I in this story? You know, what's going on here? If you are just between the judges in the book of Judges and the, Gide- you know, uh, the, um, I don't know, the Philistines are ravaging the land again and you're recording all the promises God has made. So where's this thing going? <laughs> you know, I've been waiting for seven years now and there's still the Philistines are here. And, uh, if only you knew how that episode would be preached. Uh, which is hardly at all. It's just part of a little dot in this very, very long patient arc. Also reminds me of the canticles in, in the early chapters of Luke. You know, take someone like Zechariah, you know, uh, which talks about, or, 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 or Simeon, you know, they talk about the things they have seen. You know, we can now basically say, okay, we've now seen the salvation of God. My eyes have seen that salvation. I say, well, hang on. There's an awful lot that's going to happen between now and the redemption of Israel, which they're singing, and they're not going to even see it. But they've just seen, they've seen, you know, Zechariah has seen John. The story's advancing. I've seen this bit of the story. It's like I've seen the end. Simeon has seen Jesus, the infant, another 30 years before he even comes out to be baptized, let alone all the other things. He said, I've seen your salvation. Job done. And it's that kind of patience of God's people is like recognizing, which we need, when we look at the church around us, I mean, in godless, any godless Uruguay or godless UK or wherever we are in a godless, there's like, you know, where is this, where is the story going? You know, what's happening to the church? And if let's say that Jesus waits another 500 years <clears throat> to come back, somebody's going to be preaching a sermon on church history and said, oh, you know, and in this, in the 18th, 19th and 20th century and the 21st century, blah, 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 in two sentences and they move on. We are in the midst of it. We can't see the whole horizon. <laughs> and therefore it's the kind of that's why the important thing that Paul is doing is he's drawing their attention to the big plan of God and what God was doing in which case what I'm doing or what's happening to me is not really that important it's not that interesting as long as I'm part of that story and here's the other pitfall that uh, uh, at least preachers are, are prone to and I suspect that hearers are also prone to want to hear which is that what's this, you know, what's this got to do with me is another way of saying, how does this fit into my, my life story? Of wanting to make the whole, the, the whole thing about me and my life, my story. Whereas in fact, the whole gospel is, this is what, what God's doing. And it's not that God comes into my story and makes my story more interesting or more fulfilling and all that stuff. And this is my big criticism of the Alpha Course. You know, advertising itself as, you know, search, searching for the meaning of life. Well, that phrase, generally speaking, tends to mean putting meaning into my life. But actually, the whole point is that my life gets drawn into the story of God's works. In other words, I get incorporated into the story of Jesus, not that Jesus gets incorporated into my story. You know, you, you improve my life a little bit, give it meaning. That's nice. And then I die. You put my life into the life of Jesus and hey, phew, all eternity is mine.
very, by the very fact of what John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. The less there is of me, the better my story gets. It's interesting, though, that we have this um, skipping of all of history, and then uh, Paul, nevertheless, has this little practice like Saul, uh, his namesake, and uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Paul well, himself was, so that's just, you know. <laughs> yeah, you can almost see it as a day. Do you know what my real name is? You know, yeah. actual name. <laughs> and yeah, Benjamin. Yeah, and, and he talks about that. You know, more than once he talks about the fact that he's the throne of Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. He he plays home advantage when he can, like like the best of us. Uh, <clears throat> um, and now he gets to the uh, gets to the actual point of the story from verse twenty six onwards, and we really need to read from twenty six all the way to forty uh, one. Is somebody willing to read a whole lot? Or at least part of the way. <coughs> no? I don't mind reading again. Thank you. You really don't want to hear me read it, do you? You hear <laughs> enough of me as it is. Want all the way to 41, then? If you're willing, yes. Thank you. Okay. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God... To us has been said the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Thank you. Again, any comments from you to begin with? So he is addressing fellow Jews, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. So these are Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles, 
uh, <clears throat> it was uh, quite common in in these um, Greco-Roman uh, cities where you have synagogues that there were Gentiles who were attracted <coughs> to uh, Judaism. Some people were attracted to it because of the monotheism, uh, for its own sake, because it, it seemed if you, uh, it seemed to make if you like better philosophical sense than polytheism and the you know the Gro- Roman gods were mostly borrowed from the the Greeks and the Egyptians. Uh, they were a pretty unattractive lot if you if you were a thinking kind of in you know, a more sensitive kind of uh, 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 religious thinker. And many people were attracted also to the um, ethics or morality of of Judaism, which was very odd and alien and strange in that world. Um, not that different from what we would ex- would call Christian morality. Um, and in if again you were in any way uh, if you are sceptical or worse about the the Rome morality of, of Greco-Roman morality, um, you know the disregard for uh, huge swathes of human life, uh, for example, marriage yeah, and sexual immorality and so on, then Judaism offered a very a radical and very different and quite a dignified alternative. Um, and it had one other advantage, which is essential for wider acceptance, which is, is antiquity. Okay, unlike us, they were diametrical opposite of us, where we, we, we value our culture values novelty. Novelty was a naughty and dirty word in that culture. The older the thing it was, the thing was the better. <coughs> one reason why, like Shakespeare, for example, but basically told no original stories at all. He just told stories that were already around because those are the good stories. I mean, why would you want to hear some new story when they're all this the old stories, the best one, and so Judaism, even when it was despised and 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 um, um, and it often was by the Greeks and the Romans, nevertheless it was tolerated because it was undoubtedly ancient. Okay, and so that uh, that's the reason why we often find these God fearers uh, in the synagogue. So these are people who attend synagogue. Listen to their teachings, often believe in the joiner, but they haven't taken the plunge, as it were, or the knife, and they haven't actually converted to Judaism. The people who are, you know, when then we have proselytes who are converts to Judaism. But that was a really, really, really big step. It wasn't that different from the kind of huge barriers, cultural and emo- psychological barriers that exist for um, devout Muslims to convert to uh, to Christianity. Um, uh, in the same way for many pagans, conversion to Judaism was, you know, it was a really, really big deal and therefore quite rare. Um, but these god fearers were common. But Paul includes them in his sermon. So anyone who believes the scriptures, who believes in the God of Israel, Jews and Gentiles. So there's a kind of, he's already kind of beginning to slide the definition a little bit without, because he hasn't explicitly said anything about Gentile conversion. Uh, but he's kind of leaning, leaning on that door already a little bit. Um, notice again, this thing I said earlier about how God works through uh, good and evil purposes. Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which I read every Sabbath, fulfill them by condemning him. So by their very opposition to God, the scriptures, they fulfill the scriptures. God's, God will not be thwarted by our opposition or by a cooperation. 
Both of, both of those can get in the way. It should give us two things. It should give us great confidence that God's will will be done. And nobody's going to end up in hell because, I mean, they would have been saved, but, but Pastor Sharp just messed up that evangelistic talk and, you know, or, <laughs> or, or, you know, Adrian just was a bit, you know, he was just a bit brusque, too brusque with him once in the pub and he never came to church and therefore, you know, now he's in hell. That's not going to happen. Okay. And nor is it, no, nor will anyone go to heaven and say, you know, I would have been lost, but, you know, Barbara made such, such a lot of nice cups of tea that, you know, I was saying it's all God will do what God will do. And, and he will do it. He will accomplish his word will accomplish that for which he, he sent it on the one hand. On the other hand, it should make us very, very fearful in a positive sense, in a biblical sense, lest we find ourselves working against God's purposes. He can use our position just as much as he can uh, use our, our, if you like, our um, cooperation. Um, I speak loosely here, just in case you're on heresy watch, but you know what I mean. Uh, he can use both of those for his purposes, but my working against God's will will be bad news for me. Not for God's kingdom, but for me. And therefore... You would rather, I think, that God's will is done when you are working towards fulfilling God's will rather than through your opposition to it. God can do both. But you can't be saved if you are at cross purposes with God. Uh, <clears throat> and, I mean, they, they, there's a good chance that these people will have heard something about Jesus. So he's, I mean, Paul, Paul really goes, goes to work to make sure that they understand, they understand that whatever they've heard of Jesus is almost certainly, you know, through like the uh, Jewish sources, is likely to likely to be a calumny and a slander. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, and this is again something the Gospels are at pains to wonder. That even callous, uncaring, incompetent Pilate was reluctant to. I mean, if Pilate's reluctant to kill somebody, that really that's uh, that, that kind of that's pretty good good sign that this this case really is quite rickety i mean he he wasn't exactly uh, over careful with human lives generally in his in his uh, in his career then um um they asked Pilate to have him executed nevertheless and he was buried and laid in a tomb now notice again he's telling them the story by stage by stage so that by the time you've heard this you know that jesus died he he was dead and that's an important part of the story because God raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. They killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, which is essentially the same sermon that Peter preached in Jerusalem to the people of Jerusalem said, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is speaking to people who weren't there. And just a little footnote here about preaching, we mustn't be over pious about our sinfulness. Uh, in uh, what I mean by this is that when uh, when there are particular sinners, for example, mentioned in the Bible who do particular things, we mustn't assume that this is every sinner. And therefore, you know, I too am like David with Bathsheba. I too am like Saul uh, with the Witch of Endor. I too am like blah blah blah. Um, you might be, or you might not be. Not every sin of the past is your sin. Don't worry, you've got plenty of your own. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to. Add. And and I think this is important for various reasons. It's, it's 
kind of come to my mind recently. There's been several cases recently, one very prominent one about a um, <clears throat> the scandals in the lives of prominent uh, Christian uh, figures, figures in the Christian world who, and, you know, we've had for the last some decade, couple of decades now, there have been all these scandals, uh, particularly sex abuse scandals and other such things in the church, Roman Catholic church, in the in 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 uh, Protestant churches of various kinds, including also in some of our congregations, just in, you know people that are known to us but not necessarily known to others. And one reaction that I've seen repeatedly is that isn't that just as all you know you know the, the, you know that that famous guy he was a, he was a, he was a, he abused women, and you know it could have been me. And I don't think that's a helpful reaction at all. Because the fact is, I mean, I, 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 I know all of you a little bit and some of you quite well. And I have absolutely no doubt that you've got, you've got a whole lorry load of sin in your life most days and sometimes too. But that doesn't mean that you too could have been a, you know, you've, you know, just, it's just, you know, by, there by the, by the grace of God, I, you know, I, I could have been a pedophile too, or I, I could have stolen all the church's money. It's like, not likely. Actually, and what, because what what it does is it it um, in a false way it makes all sin equal. You know, which is worse? You know, killing killing uh, an innocent baby uh, half an hour before his baptism in front of his parents, or being really, really grumpy and angry at your spouse because you haven't had enough sleep and, and it's not lunchtime yet. And you can say, well, they're both sins and all sin leads to hell. So it's not really, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think it makes a lot of difference, actually. Um, because us is, is not, that's a very egotistical way of thinking about it. It's, you know, as you know, if it, if it sends me to hell one way or another, it doesn't really matter which I do. But God isn't just interested in you and your salvation. God is actually interested in all of us. And therefore, as the catechism puts in, when it comes to the second half, the commandments, it doesn't say we should fear and love God so that we don't break the first three commandments and we should be really nice to our neighbors. No, it says we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm a neighbor in his body. God cares about all of us, and therefore the love of neighbor is as an aspect of our love of God, and and therefore it actually, in, in as far as my kind of whether I'm guilty or not of sin, it doesn't really matter whether I've murdered or just been angry. But in everyday living, in the world with other people and before God, it makes a great deal of difference. This is why one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. We need self-control because we have sinful impulses, but the Holy Spirit gives us self-control so that those sinful impulses remain our problem and don't become other people's problems. So I, think, yeah, I think the phrase there, but for the grace of God, that's calling my purity in John Bradford, wasn't it? I can't remember. I've, I've had it. Whenever he saw some, somebody being hauled off for some sort of fairly lurid punishment, I think he's, you know, the idea was there, but for the grace of God goes John Bradford in saying that, Yes. I think he was still grateful that he wasn't, he hadn't been, end up doing whatever other sort of horrible crime or sin this other person had done, but he just, yeah, still grateful to God that God has spared him yeah, what he had spared him from. It's true. I mean, if, if, if God didn't give us his grace and, 
if, if you'll permit me to speak in kind of slightly reformed language, if you didn't give us common grace as well as, uh, I don't know what the other one is called in, in reformed theology. I can't remember. Prevenient grace? Uh, some of the special. Prevenient? Sorry? The prevenient? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You know, if, if that, you know, the very fact that I was brought up by wise parents means that uh, the chances of my turning into a condemned, you know, a, a condemned criminal will already reduce a great deal before they taught me the will of God, just because they were wise parents. And that was a gift of God. And the fact that I live in a prosperous era where there's enough of everything and therefore I'm much less tempted to resort to stealing because, you know, I'm, I'm not short of anything. That's already a gift of God. And they're, they're for the, but for the grace of God, go I when I look at, go to some poor country with people living in slums and they steal because they, they, they can't think of any other way of keeping body and soul together. But at the same time, grace of God has come to me. And therefore, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I can't say that, you know, I too might have been a sexual abuser because, I mean, I have never knowingly been in the remotest bit tempted to become one. I mean, I, I, I break the sixth commandment just like you do in my own ways. But, you know, by the, but that, it doesn't, you know, we must call, you know, when, when we see particular evil, we, we, we must highlight the fact there's a particular evil because otherwise we, we essentially are doing an, a, a terrible injustice to the victims and we are we are uh you know we, we're kind of making something that is scandalous and, and 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 uncommon just ordinary and common which is contrary to the will of god god cares whether your anger boils into murder or not in fact he cares about whether your anger boils up into angry words he doesn't want you to do that your sin should be only your problem and the moment it becomes other people's problem, that concerns God too. It's not really what Paul's talking about, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Um, and so he doesn't say, you guys, you're Jews just like they were, so you guys, you two are guilty. He doesn't do that. I mean, I do this. You know, we all do this. Uh, you know, Jesus died for my sins, therefore all my sins led him to the cross. It's true, but it's interesting that in the book of Acts, none of the apostles ever uses that as a as a preaching technique kind of say you know i know it's the jerusalem jews who who nailed it with the cross but really it was all of us they never say that i didn't i can't think of anywhere in the new testament where it really says that in that way it's a later preaching trope and it's 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 true but just i think it's it's, it's worth noting that it's a post-biblical form of piety essentially um of course, the key point that what he's trying to do is he was saying, for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee, Galilee to Jerusalem, not including Saul and Barnabas, note, uh, um, who are now his witnesses to the people. So there's what happened to Jesus. He definitely died. God raised him from the dead. And we have eyewitnesses. This is fact. He doesn't lead with, you know, I used to lead this life and look, I, I was saved and look at how wonderful it is. And you too can have this wonderful experience. Um, he does that in, in other contexts for different reasons. But rather he talks about facts. Jesus lives, we have eyewitnesses, and we bring you the good news. Can you somebody translate that into Middle English? Good news? Glad tidings? No, Middle English. Godspell. <laughs> Godspell. Yeah. Okay, gospel. The good news. 
um, that what God promised to the fathers, hence the all the history, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So everything that was promised in the Old Testament to our fathers, we, the children of this generation, now get to witness has been delivered to us. The promise has been fulfilled for us. This is like the reverse of the, uh, you know, the, um, the end of the first commandment, you know, that he visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But promise is steadfast love to, and depending on how you translate it, either thousands of those who love him keep his commandments or to a thousand generations of those who love him keep his commandments. Those are the, you know, you could translate it either way. Um, you know, that the, the promises made to the fathers have stayed alive until now. And of course, the first promise was made to whom? Of salvation. I suppose Adam and Eve. Yeah, to Eve. So all this time, so that, that, that makes the story a bit longer still. And all this time we were waiting and now it's been fulfilled and the fulfillment is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now he doesn't then go into a doctrinal treatise, a treatise on what that means, but rather he begins to quote, quote scripture. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He, which implies that dot 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 what does that imply? That quotation, what's he implying by quoting Psalm 2 like that? The English English translators have, have helped you a little bit with the capitalization. You are my son. My question is clearly a rubbish question because nobody knows how to answer that. Capital S. So this tells us about the identity of Jesus. The Reference to his divinity? Yeah, it refers to God, Jesus of identity as the son of God. And now Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's, it's about the kingship. It's about the, 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 uh, the anointed one, uh, the son of David. And Jesus now is here identified as the son of David. But in fact, the son of David is God's son. He's anointed one. So all the promises, hence, hence the kind of history of David. Here's the key thing. The kingdom was promised to David. It's been strong, you know, the history, if you know the history between David and John the Baptist, you know that there was a lot of trouble and the kingdom didn't do also all that well. But there was this promise that one day it will be restored. That's happened because Jesus rose from the dead. So all the things that ailed Israel have now been cancelled by the raising, uh, resurrection of Jesus. And this is something, and you'll see again, Verse 34, 34, uh, uh, he quotes from, um, from Isaiah. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. The kingdom belongs to Jesus. That's the point. Therefore, he also says oh, in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And that can't have been about David because we know that David is dead and buried. Then goes that because Jesus died and rose from the dead, he doesn't talk anything about the kind of uh, any anything about the means of atonement. He doesn't talk about reconciliation. Doesn't talk about substitutionary atonement or or any other such thing. He just says he died and he rose from the dead, and therefore the kingdom has been promised to him 
It's his kingdom, uh, Jesus' kingdom. Let it be known to you, therefore, verse 38, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, and here's a, here's a it's a tricky thing to translate. Um, I don't, I haven't got in front of me NIV. Barbara, would you mind telling me, verse 39 says, something like, by him, everyone who believes is what? What's the NIV They're say? Free from. Thank you. Sin, our justification. Yes. Aha. Oh, interesting. Um, it said free from. From sin. Yeah. Yeah. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Oh, that's interesting. That's a sort of hybrid. Basically, what it says is that by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The ESV says freed and freed. And the NIV clearly goes, uh, uh, goes both. It's a, has, it's a hybrid, has a bit of both because the whole expression to be justified from something it's really awkward and odd and really rare where, you know, that's not how that phrase is usually uh, used. <coughs> but here we see, and this is the, uh, how many how many different preachers do we have in Book of Acts? How many different people do we have preaching in Acts? Stephen, Peter, Paul. Yeah. How many of them use the word justify or righteousness? You've heard all the sermons of Peter and Stephen so far. So how many times do they talk about justification or righteousness? Neil, I think. No, no, not at all. And now we get Paul preaching for the first time. And hey, presto, we've got justification coming in straight away. He, he really he really was very fond of this justification business, which is all over his letters as well. Okay. Um, so he... He, without going into great detail, at least the way that Luke summarizes this sermon, he do, he already talks, tells us the key thing. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus, what do they, and the kingship of Jesus, what do they procure for us? The answer is forgiveness of sins and justification, which could not be obtained by the law. We're justified from all the things from which we couldn't be justified by the law of Moses. What are those things that we would have but could not have been justified by the law of Moses. Correctly, everything. Yes, but what, 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 let's itemize the everything. <laughs> what, what does everything consist of? Under the law of Moses. Justification under the law of Moses. For the whole law. Yes, go on. Right. So what, what, but what does it mean to be justified in that sense? To be found righteous? Yes, to be found righteous. What about this justified from? I mean, it's, it's really peculiar. This is why the translators decided to chicken out and put it in a footnote. Um, but what do you, were you justified from what? From our sin. Yes, from our guilt, from our unrighteousness, um, from from all the th accusations, if you like, of the law. And the law could not, we could not be justified under by the law of Moses because the problem wasn't, was in us. 
and therefore it had to happen to, to use this is a, a great uh, uh, a sort of Lutheran cliche to talk about extra nos, which is Latin for outside of us. The story so far has been we haven't been mentioned in the story at all. The, he, you know, he hasn't talked about himself. He hasn't talked about the, his hearers. He's just been talking about what God has been doing until Jesus is raised from the dead and said, okay, now we are telling you that this has happened and that this is how your sins are forgiven and you can be justified in a way that the law cannot help you. And it's the, the gospel always is the gospel is, is good news because it's all accomplished already. And we come into the story once the package is ready. It's a bit like when you, you know, when you shop online, you click on the button and the really good news is that it's going to come to you and someone's going to ring the doorbell and deliver a package and there and there and you just start using it. It's all been done for you. You didn't even have to get out of a house. And in the same way, you know, everything, God has done this all and it now comes to us and we've got this ready package. Um, and of course, the, the thing that he doesn't talk about at this stage, this introductory sermon, is he doesn't talk about how we receive it, which is obviously the, is a big question. So, you know, we don't get, you know, we didn't get the Lutheran shibboleth of word and sacrament here, uh, but he talks about the fact that it is so. May I suggest, I mean, that we take note of this when we think about the way that we share the gospel with others. No, noting that the he is speaking to people who know the scriptures inside out and believe them, which is not likely to be the case when we are uh, talking, you know, talking to unbelievers, but nevertheless taking note that he is not leading with let me offer you a nice life or let's make sense of your life. Or there's this really thing that you couldn't possibly do. He leads by talking about God's working and by, which culminates in what Jesus has done and what God has done in Jesus. And that's the only gospel. And that's the only thing that's going to give faith in Jesus. You might, you know, you may sweeten the pill with, with other things, but none of those other things is the gospel. And so whenever we are, you know, if we put on evangelistic events or outreach events, whatever we're going to call them, you know, if, 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 if Jesus isn't in the center of it, then it's, it's social work or could being just nice neighbors. Um, and as we are about to find out, it may or may not turn out well. It might not, may or may not work. He finishes with a word of warning. Verse 40, and this is again, Pastor Sharp knows very well that we Lutheran preachers are always told, finish your sermons with a warning and admonition, because that, is that what you, how you were trained? I don't think so. No, no. Always finish with the gospel, never, never, never send them to worry, no. Beware, therefore, you don't become, you don't fulfill the scripture in, in the wrong way. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. I've told you, don't be that. Put that into your next evangelistic talk. Okay, so it's it's again, it's, it's straight talking. He's, he's offered them good news and now he's warned them, don't overlook it, don't reject it. And what happens? 
people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And there's a lot of conversation. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, these are the proselytes, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there is, you can see the fruit of a gospel there and then. This leads to people being drawn to hear more, hunger for the word. Hunger for the word is always a sure sign that the Holy Spirit is at work. And it's a much surer sign than almost anything else that passes for the work of the Holy Spirit in anyone's life. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the, and Paul and Barnabas instruct them and urge them to continue in the grace of God. No doubt having the parable of the uh, sower in the back of their minds. Don't just start the race. You have to now continue in the grace. I just realized that we never actually read those verses, did we? We went straight to the commentary. There you go. I apologize. So we finish uh, finish off the uh, the uh, the aftermath, and then we can say that we've done a good job with this chapter. Does anybody want to read the the remaining verses from forty four to the end, or rather, is anyone willing to read from forty four to the end? You probably don't. Yeah, I can read. Thank you. Um, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have, I have made to your light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Okay, so um, here we see the twofold reaction to the word of God. There's belief and unbelief. There's acceptance and there's a rejection. And we begin to see the pattern of this mission that it begins in the synagogue and it gets driven out of the synagogue and therefore it ends up being taken to the Gentiles. This is how it goes all the way through the whole of the book of Acts. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> to the very end of the final chapter, Paul keeps consistently going to the Jews, going to the synagogue, and pretty consistently gets thrown out and then ends up going to the Gentiles. The only exception being when there are no Jews at all. Uh, <clears throat> and here we see again, so the, is the, I, I'm pretty confident this is a slight exaggeration. Uh, the next time is almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, as it were. <laughs> okay. Now this sounds very Jesus-like again. Remember, this is, Acts partly is told in a way to say we can see the parallels between the ministry of Jesus 
in his person and the ministry of Jesus through the apostles. What event in the uh, in the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels does this parallel? Verse 44. Anyone? I can think of something where Jesus was speaking to thousands and then they all went away. Yep. So there's the whole feeding of the 5,000. We've got massive. Yeah. And we've got, of course, we've got the, in, in the, near the beginning of the gospels, when you've got the healing of the paralytic man lowered through the roof, you know, the place, the whole, whole town has, has packed itself into the, into the room and, and, and they can't fit in. So you've got these sort of parallels with, you know, what happened in the ministry of Jesus when he carried out in his person continues to happen when Jesus' Jesus's ministry continues through his apostles. Because that, of course, is the, is the key point. This is not Paul's ministry. This is the con- continued presence and activity of Jesus uh, in through his uh, uh, chosen apostles. And, funny enough, what is the reaction of the Jews? The Jews meaning the kind of the leading members of the, of the um, representatives of the community. They're jealous because lots That's of people... Familiar. Mm, just like the Pharisees. Well, what did, what did, what, what was Pilate's misgiving about, one of the Pilate's misgivings about condemning Jesus? Do you remember? He saw that it was out of jealousy. A jealousy or envy that they had handed him over. So this whole envy and jealousy, you know, the scene that, he, in fact, we already saw that the disciples of John the Baptist were envious of Jesus' ministry. It is in John's Gospel. And so, again, what happened to Jesus happens both in good and in ill. And Jesus is what Jesus said, you know, no disciples above his master. And so what happens to me will happen to you. Um, they began to contradict what was spoken about Paul, reviling him. Okay, they're not just arguing against, they are mocking. Um, it's almost like somebody had already invented Twitter and Facebook in the first century. You know, how dare you, what, what, you know, were you bigger, you terrible person? How can you possibly say such thing? Um, it's not a, it's not a 21st century invention. And they spoke out boldly. I see what they, I mean, I, 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 I admire their, their, their courage to speak their minds, if you like. It was necessary the word of God be first spoken to you. This is the will of God. And this is always the thing. You know, it's Jew first and then Gentiles. But look at it. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Include that in your next evangelistic talk as well to the people who start heckling you. They judge themselves. It doesn't say God judges them. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Not, not fit for the gospel. We are turning to the Gentile, Gentiles and, the, and then he quotes from Isaiah. And what's the end result? The Gentiles rejoice. The salvation is for us, not just for the Jews. You can imagine all those God-fearing Gentiles who've been going to the synagogue faithfully week after week, maybe for years, and have not had the courage to, or whatever reason, have not converted Judaism. And they keep hearing again these promises to Israel, and they believe in the God of Israel, but is this for me? Is this for me? No, it's not. It's for Israel. And now Paul says, no, no, no. It's for the Gentiles. God has given this to you. And there are lots of, you know, post kind of, um, uh, post medieval Christian versions of this, but you know, the, how, how often 
well, well, I didn't have to ask that in Delhi. So often, you you know, we we come across Christians, and maybe you being that person yourself, you know, is could this really be for a person like me? What about me? No, surely not, because I'm such and such. Whether you know, I'm a Gentile, I'm. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner. You know, I've, I've I've lived this life. Could it possibly be for me? And then somebody says, you know, actually, the gospel is for you, all of you, and it leads to rejoicing. And we're not going to c- discuss election and predestination, but it does say, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The reason is it's the quarter past eight, and if we start now, we are not going to go to bed on time. <laughs> He insists we'll come back to it next week. But the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So here we see they went to the main town and it begins to spread through the region. And it doesn't, you know, it's the word that is doing the spreading. And I think that's again, you know, God is at work. And then they eventually get thrown out. Uh, Just quick note about the devout women of high standing. If you are a person of high standing in in in, a, in society particularly if you're involved in the administration and you were a man because they didn't have such a thing as religion as opposed to secular life what we call religion was completely infused it was just just one thing called the public life it was virtually impossible to hold public office and not be involved fully in the cultic life the pagan cultic life and therefore, because men, generally speaking, held all the public office, the threshold, if you're a man of high standing, of being anything other than a, in a fully participant in in this sort of pagan worship, you you was just you couldn't be both, uh, both uh, you know you couldn't refuse to be part of that and be of high standing. And therefore, when we get people of high standing, and already uh, early on we have people as far up as as the kind of the the royal household or the imperial household in Rome become involved in the Christian faith, it's almost always women. Because they don't have that, you know, they, they can they can kind of, they have that freedom. Um, and even now, you know, <clears throat> you ask you ask some of the Christians who go into politics what it's like to try to be in politics, in public life, and hold on to Christian principles. I mean, we had a leader on the Lib Dems, you know, a few years ago who, you know, they, they, the media couldn't get over the fact that he, he, he was a Christian who actually believed what Christians believe. And that was just, you know, essentially made him unelectable. Uh, yes. Tim Barron, if you remember. Is it, is it like sort of, I suppose, in more recent times, you know, the, the, the great and good in society will tend to be uh, Freemasons or whatever? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing. And, and you can't, and again, there's the barriers, the barriers, and, and, and the, in that time, they were insurmountable. And most of the persecutions in the early early centuries of Christianity were tend to be local, and they tend to be often to be focused if they were not if they were not focused on popular discontent and looking for uh, looking for uh, easy scapegoats. They tended to be focused on participation in the public cultic life in the local temple, and that was the kind of that was litmus test. If you took part, you were fine. If you didn't, you were. And it begins here. So. They shook off the dust from their feet. Where did they get that idea from? That was, in the, that was Jesus. It's all the instruction to the seventy-two, wasn't it? Yeah. And what does that in, what does that communicate? That action. What it, it's? It's, uh, I think, a warning of destruction, isn't it? Well, what you know, if you shake the dust off your feet, what are you saying? You don't want anything of them. They don't want yeah. anything of you. We don't even want the dust off your ground. We're going to leave. We're going to leave you. Um, 
leave you, uh, you know, um, and including all the all the muck that you've stuck in my feet. I don't want any part and parcel of you. So he, it's a real kind of act of, if you like, a, a declaration of rejection and, and judgment against them. And went to Iconium. Okay, so we're not welcome here. We're going to go somewhere else. Iconium, so they traveled due east, roughly, to Iconium, uh, which is the next uh, city that way. And the disciples, who are they? Which disciples? The, the, the newfound believers. Yes, yeah, so the, the, we have a church now in, in Antioch, uh, uh, in Pisidia, and we already have disciples. We have no record of any baptisms. Uh, I would, since we have no Baptists uh, in this Zoom, I'm just going to say that we can pretty safely assume that baptisms were carried out. They are pretty much <laughs> taken for granted uh, at, um, throughout the um, throughout the New Testament. We have disciples who are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And note that they didn't need Paul and Barnabas there anymore. Because, again, the kingdom of God doesn't depend on any any one person or another. Which takes us to the end of the chapter. It's a bit of a gallop in places, uh, partly because I decided to st- stop in inappropriate places earlier on. Um, any 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 sort of final comments or, or thoughts, uh, questions, corrections? Well, I think there's, there's echoes of this at the end of Acts when uh, Paul again sort of... Uh, Again, publicly, so tells the Jews, disbelieving Jews, he gives up on them. Yes, this is the first. This is the first synagogue Interpol goes, and in the last synagogue he goes in Rome, we have this very, very same conversation. It's a kind of a bit of a Groundhog Day kind of thing where he says, "Okay, we've come to the now we're going to go to the Gentiles," and of course we know that he's been going to the Gentiles for the last few decades by now. But you know, kind of he says that (laughs) again, so it it does form uh, a bookend, if you like, to Paul's ministry. I think it's interesting that he has that verse in verse um, 47 from Isaiah, I think, mm. for me to see, um, which uh, that I've made you a light for the Gentiles, which is sort of um, Simeon says, doesn't he? Yes. Yes. Um, which that's at the, well, not at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, at the beginning of Jesus's life. And this is the beginning of Paul's ministry. Is that anything significant about that or is that just there? Uh, I think Simeon knew Isaiah too. Just, just, just there then. I mean, this is the same author. I mean, that. That's what I mean. It's, it's Luke, writing it's, both of them. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, the very fact that you noticed it, I think it answers your question. Yeah. And it's the whole, I mean, it's same in Song of Zechariah. It talks about the, you know, the, uh, I can't remember, there's so many different translations these days. It's one of my liturgical pet peeves. It's hard to remember them because there are too many, but the, you know, the, you know, the, um, the, uh, uh, you know, the day star has risen amongst, you know, the, um, how, how, how does it go in this? Anyway, the, you know, the language of the, you know, in, in the Song of Zechariah about, in the Benedictus about basically the dawn has risen. Um, and, and so the whole idea of the light, uh, but it, it does come from, uh, specifically, particularly from Isaiah. Mm. Prophet. Yeah. 
Thank you. Good. Good. That's a good observation. Can I uh, just uh, add a bit? Um, whilst very interested in the historic bits and, and all the rest of it and how things was happening, but I'm sitting there a little bit and thinking, how does this help us tell other people about Jesus? Uh, that's, uh, could you not have asked that question 50 minutes ago when he wasn't coming past me, Barbara? Come on. Well, I've been sitting here, sort well, of, you, you know, listening and thinking, oh, yeah, I didn't realise that and I didn't realise that. But I'm not quite sure how my realising is helping me to share the gospel. But well, the gospel yeah, is, you know, what is the gospel? The gospel is you tell people what God has done, which is what Paul's done. So you do the same. So but, you act but, as a model. But that's that's not where people are at the moment, aren't they? It feels to me, although I could be wrong, that sort of, you know, all these years ago, this was like normal that people uh, spoke with each other in terms of a God and things like that. Mm. But nowadays, can I say most people, I don't want to, but don't even think of God. Um think we need to be careful that we don't assume that okay well that's fair enough i'd be very pleased to uh i think i think a lot of people, a lot more people think about it than they're willing to admit when you get them one-to-one particularly um pastor sharp could i ask you're you're a missionary in a in a in a in a, in a soil in a working in a soil that's about as rocky and hard as the one in the uk i i, I believe you know how would you answer that? I, I think you're you're more of the expert than I am. Uh, uh, well, I, I I think it depends on the context. I think it's it's not this is not fair. Uh, Well, turn off the recording, I, I, or at least edit this part out, please. Um, now, these are all facts of, of, that you guys know. Uh, you know, these people don't know anything. You know, so I, I, like, I, I, I try not when I when I attend other pastors' Bible studies, I try not to bust in a lot because that's annoying to me as a pastor. Um, but like when I was thinking, like, you can't do that. I mean, how do you do that in modern Britain when people don't know any of these things? You know, so you have to at least get them to a point where, where they understand something. But I also feel like you can kind of skip a lot too, because, um, the, the most success, and I mean, of course, the success is, is by the Holy Spirit, but the, what I've seen is not to waste time trying to convince people to believe in God. Uh, because Muslims believe in God, uh, you know, Mormons kind of believe in God, just some generic small G God, right? Um, but to actually just get, go straight to the gospel, uh, you know, people know the law, the law is written in their hearts, and people live the law every day, whether they know it or not, and people are crushed by the law, even if they're atheists, they, they don't know it. Um, and so I just talk about what we believe, like what the point of Jesus was, and these people, what they know of Christianity, they only think of it as a morality, like it's it's a, a set of values. And so 
when you tell them that it's not, that, that that's not it, what it's about, that really about uh, overall is that the, the, the God who created the world uh, was incarnate in Jesus Christ and that his life and his death and his ministry and his resurrection is to, to free us and to forgive us and to give us eternal life. Uh, I think that you don't have to um, necessarily, uh, you know, teach a, an intro to the Bible class to, to get people to that point. But they, they really, it depends it, it, because some people know more than others. Some people are coming out of sort of a, a Roman Catholic background. Um, it's a very, very, it, it, I, I think a lot, there, the parallels with Britain are, are very, uh, very on point, I suppose. The, um, because we do have a lot of evangelical churches here too that have a very bad reputation uh, and are kind of thought uh, poorly of, uh, you know. And so we actually dropped the word evangelical from our church. Uh, we're just St. Paul Lutheran Church now instead of St. Paul Evangelical Lutheran Church because uh, they, when they hear the word evangelical, they think of these shysters that, that come from Brazil mostly. And uh, so, you know, it depends on. It depends on the context, and it's it's hard. It's not easy, uh, but it's, it's what we're stuck with here. So, do it. Thank you for you sharing. Uh, for future references, if you've ever come back, I really don't mind about people butting in. Even other, well, right. it's nice for nice for folks to hear other other perspectives than mine. They hear plenty of me. But can I just just say, from what you say, I think the key point really is you know, just go straight for the gospel. You know, tell tell them what God has done. Um, yeah, I, I feel like most people really, you know, they live the law every day. We were just, we had the um, teacher training, like workshop that we just started school this week. My academic year uh, is different in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, we every year have uh, a series of, of, I don't know, we call them, I can't think of the word in English right now, capacitation. It's not really how we use it, but like a, a workshop for, for all the teachers. Most of our teachers are not Lutheran. And so they don't know that much about Lutheranism. And so we try to teach them a little bit so they at least understand. And that was one of the points I was making, uh, during my, my section was, uh, that, that what does it mean to be a gospel centered institution? What does it mean to be Christocentric or whatever? And to tell them that, you know, we're not, most of our families send their kids to our school because they think we're going to teach them good values because that's what they think Christianity is. And so these kids get law at home. They get law in the classroom. Uh, you know, they get law if they cross the street in the wrong place. Uh, the, everyone lives the law every day uh, because it's, it's the natural way of the world. But the, uh, the gospel is completely contrary to everything we could come up with. And so... You know, I, I don't, I, you know, there are a lot of people that need to hear the law too because they're unrepentant sinners. But I think that they, they, they feel enough of the crush and the weight of the law in their daily lives that you can just go to the message of the gospel. You don't have to teach them about Noah. You don't have to teach them even about David or, or any of those things. I mean, it's great that God, Lord willing, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they will grow in faith and want to hear how, how uh, Jesus fulfilled all the promises that God made in the Old Testament. But, but the biggest thing is that uh, Jesus frees us from all this crushing weight of law and gives us an eternity of, of, of peace, you know, uh, which is something that they will 
will never get with our own abilities. So. Okay. Thank you very much. I hope that gave you something to some some answer to your question, Barbara. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I, I kind of. No, well, not, I think I was just in the spirit of thing of not really answering the question that I was asked. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, Barbara's very used to that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I figure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. We're going to have to stop here because of the time. Thank you, thank you, everyone, for uh, for all your contributions. It's, it's uh, great to see that we we have uh, we we've been uh, cross intercontinental tonight, which is uh, wonderful. Uh, just before we finish, just just wish uh, all your work there and your life there, um, your family and your church, um, um, our our blessing. We pray for our various partner churches uh, around the world. Um, on a rotation, we pray for the uh, Lutherans in Uruguay uh, a couple of times a year on, on throughout the whole, all, all of the ELCs. So uh, you know that you are in our prayers. And if you ever want to come back and uh, butt in and, and, and contradict uh, contradict me or try whatever it is, you're you're very very welcome to do that as well. Let's. Close. I haven't made it to Bath, so. Uh, oh, there you go. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for all your wonderful works from our creation. Uh, to the redemption that you've wrought for us in Jesus Christ and for bringing us into that, uh, into your kingdom uh, by the uh, gifts of your Holy Spirit. Please uh, help us by your Holy Spirit to remain in that grace we have received. And we pray that you would bless the preaching of your gospel, not only amongst us, but also amongst those who don't know you yet. We pray for our communities here in, uh, in Fareham and in southern England. We pray for the church in uh, Uruguay. And for the preaching of the gospel there, that you would still uh, call people to repentance and faith, break the uh, bonds of unbelief and hardness of heart, so that many would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to share with us and with all your saints in the gifts of uh, eternal life and salvation. Keep us now in this night. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.